What you are about to hear is not, 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 not a podcast. <laughs> this is a global conversation recorded live in real time with real people, journalists, business leaders, academics, politicians. I think the term is a deep state. Oh dear. Investors, experts, diplomats, citizens, coming together from around the world to share their views and ask our guests the questions. If you would like to join this conversation or hear our incredible library of past conversations, please visit our website, pm101.club, and join the fastest growing conscious community on the free internet. Thanks for being here. Enjoy. 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 Enjoy the show. The show. The show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Politics and Media 101 the place where we all hear live and direct from people in the news, in their own voices, in their own words, in long form, and where anyone who wants to can join to ask them a question, share their thoughts, or just listen. I'm Jeff Browning, and I'm grateful to you for being here. Today, we're excited to release part of a conversation, interview, and audience Q&A we had with Andrew Sullivan. He's a former editor of The New Republic. You may have seen his work in Time, The Atlantic, or The Daily Beast, And politically, he holds a very interesting philosophy. In the U.S., as everyone knows, we have two main political parties, the Democrats and Republicans, and many people identify as a member of one party or another. However, there are thousands of important issues facing policymakers on any given day. So just because someone agrees with Republicans or Democrats on one issue doesn't mean they have to agree on all issues. This is a part of why Andrew's philosophy is so fascinating. Andrew is someone who's courageous in his beliefs, who has supported both political parties on issues in the past, and who pulls no punches when giving explanations of why. So we appreciated the chance to hear from Andrew. We had great audience questions, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. As always, if you like or dislike what you hear, if you want to find out how to join us live almost every day of the week, maybe ask one of our upcoming guests a question, or hear past episodes, please visit our website pm101.club or pm101.live. They both work and will get you to the same place where you can find all that and more. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. You've supported both parties and made arguments from the right and the left. I really want to know, though, how would you characterize your own ideology? Well, I consider myself and still consider myself a conservative. And Perhaps the best way to explain what I mean by that was a, a book I wrote, The Conservative Soul. But it's essentially a, a, an unideological attempt to defend uh, liberal society as a, as a value and as a, a structure that is very well worth conserving. And that kind of conservative response to modernity is 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 really rooted in in the work and thinking of Michael Oakeshott, who is the uh, person who, uh, who, on whom I wrote my, my dissertation. Um, and therefore, I don't think I've really made arguments from the left, uh, to be honest with you. I, I don't think that would be uh, – I, I, I don't know quite – some people regard what I was saying as from the left. But for example, um, my whole point about uh, a gay marriage and the military and integration is – was really a more, uh, at least classical liberal, small C conservative position than anything on the left. And I think that's, uh, I supported Obama because he wasn't actually on the left. Um, he was a sort of moderate Republican uh, from the 1970s, really. Um, and, 
and one opposes Trump. I oppose Trump, not from the left, but on the basis of of sanity and and an understanding and defense of the Constitution and of liberal society. So I I I don't think I've really made arguments from the left. I've I've, I've made arguments from the same place. One of the hopes I had in putting this book out there is that people can see, in fact, that there's a, a hope, uh, a consistency through those decades, uh, which when it encounters very particular moments of, of ideological difference, whether it encounters a, uh, a George W. Bush or whether it encounters a Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, it will take a, a not always predictable, certainly not partisan, Position. So I've never been a Republican, never been a Democrat, but never been on the left, I don't think, in any meaningful way. Well, thank you for that. We will dive deeper into some of the uh, arguments and uh, really movements you've been at the forefront of. But first, I'd be remiss if I didn't pick your brain about all the editorial rooms you've been in, some of the most influential magazines in America. I'm going to name some of them. The Atlantic, The New Republic. New York Magazine, The Daily Beast. Can you tell us, layman, tell us a little bit about the different cultures inside these magazines. What makes a newsroom healthy or, conversely, a toxic place? Well, the truth is, I haven't, I mean, I was, obviously I was at the New Republic in the very office itself because I was the editor of the place. So, and those editorial meetings over the span of probably a decade or so, um, were an amazing intellectual and political experience. You got to imagine I was I was brought in as an intern, basically in my twenties, from another country entirely, and was plopped right in the middle of these extraordinary intellects, and uh, with all sorts of competing agendas in a time when the New Republic itself had become a kind of stage for conflicts within the liberal tradition. And there I was, a British story, uh, brought in to watch that. So it was a, I mean, I did a PhD uh, in uh, political science at Harvard, and I, I, I did my dues in understanding American culture, history, and politics, but nothing could have been a better education than being around some extraordinarily brilliant people at a moment in that magazine's history, which I think was a, a real peak of its influence and of its internal divisions, which made everything really interesting. And I think I was kind of maybe, um, because I loved the idea of a magazine where one writer was blasting another writer, um, when everyone was blasting the editor and the editor was telling the, the, the owner to go uh, jump off the cliff, et cetera, et cetera. I love that. Um, it reminded me very much of a kind of media culture in Britain, too, um, where there's a kind of free-for-all in those newsrooms. Now, when I've, the only other place I've really worked in, as opposed to just working for on my own in a, in a room in my own, um, because I, I never really – I'm just never really part of the Daily Beast uh, – Operation. I was never there uh, every day, for example. And even at the Atlantic, I wasn't really. But at the beginning of the Atlantic was, again, it was, I was brought in partly to, to launch their website because I brought the readers I'd brought from the dish to the Atlantic, which helped them get a kind of volume of readership which they hadn't had. When I went there, it was a really quiet place. There was probably about 15 staffers. I think there are hundreds and hundreds now. 
And it was in an old school literary political journal, monthly, uh, with a, that kind of pace and that kind of sensibility. And so I, that's the last place that would ever have me. <laughs> so, uh, and those two were relatively similar at the time. And in fact, in the early days of the Atlantic, 2006 to like 2009, 10, it was a very similar thing. We had, you know, we had this voices model where we had Ta-Nehisi Coates, they had Ross Douthat, Megan McCardle, me and Matt Iglesias, all blogging together in one space. Uh, and of course, there were many different disagreements between us, including also, by the way, Jeffrey Goldberg was also blogging too. But you can imagine the, the conflicts that happened. So it was quite similar there. Um, and it may be that I'm so used to those kind of freewheeling, fun, enterprising sort of exchanges of ideas that I don't fully understand what's happened to newsrooms and magazines since, because I've been, I was on my own doing the dish for a long time. Um, and uh, at New York, which all I can tell you is the editors that I worked with were splendid. Um, Adam Moss, I'd worked with since my twenties when I worked on seven days with him and people like Jeb Reed, um, uh, David Wallace Wells, uh, and David Haskell were incredibly good editors. Um, but I wasn't part of the atmosphere of the place. Um, because again, I stayed in DC and that was New York city. So I don't really have a firsthand account of what it was like to live in the newsrooms other than those two. Um, so <clears throat> you're speaking to us, Politics and Media 101. We are ourselves embarking on a new media project, which, similar to your work, is independent and outside of the partisan framework. I like to call it the horse race that you see a lot of different media outlets embark on and really make their money on. I'm wondering, though, what was what was the decision to leave the mainstream media behind and embark on? Now you're in Substack. It's extremely, extremely successful. You have a ton of different readers. You're publishing a book out on a limb for the audience. Um, what has been the benefits and some of the drawbacks, some of the stuff that you miss from the other enterprises that we had just discussed when you went out and went on your own? Well, thank you for that question. Um, I... I sort of first went out on my own in 2000 when I started my original blog, The Daily Dish. And so I'd kind of gotten used to that. That was uh, you know, 21 years ago when I started doing this stuff independently. The thrill then, because that was the very early days before the blogosphere had even really taken off, um, was the sense of a complete virgin territory. Uh, you could do whatever you wanted. I remember just the excitement of being able that those days, the New York times would appear once a day, just before midnight online. That was how digitally um, it happened back then. Uh, and I loved to stay up until like 11 o'clock at midnight, then read the times and then bash out various columns, criticizing this, that, and that person having a go at Maureen or, you know, having a bash at this, but before people got out of their beds in the morning, and then they would read my stuff alongside the Times, and it was a way of really getting into the mix. So that kind of mischief-making was part of the process. Um, then, of course, the amazing interaction with the readership, which you have. I mean, I remember the first two emails I got. One was from North, North Dakota, and the second was 
was from New Zealand. And I'm like, fuck me, this is incredible. I, I, you can reach anyone. No editors to watch over you, no publisher that you have to kind of appease in some way or other. Um, uh, you had none of the costs of, of traditional media. And remember, I ran a traditional magazine for five years, which is a print magazine put out every week. I knew the economics of this. They were not easy, but take out the expenses of, uh, of the paper and the delivery and printing and mailing. Uh, and then take out the office as an infrastructure. You have this extraordinary opportunity. So that's how I saw it. And it, it just evolved daily. And then it became more and more frenetic over the years until we added more people in the Atlantic. I added interns at Beast. We added more. And we were having a pace of production that went on for several years in such a way that was unsustainable. And so starting off again at Substack um, was an attempt really to kind of revive that community, but not so that I would be dead within a few years from exhaustion or uh, or other health issues, which was really what bugged me. And it's worked out great. Now, what I missed, of course, you miss editors um, because you always benefit from a good editor. And I miss the way I could shape essays. I miss some of the large projects that the New York, New York Magazine gave me. Um, on the other hand, you know, by that point in my own career, I'd already been an editor. Uh, I had spent a lot of time editing other people. I had learned by doing the blogging every day how to sort of edit myself. I'm not, you know, I wouldn't say... I hope the weekly dish is sometimes substats can get a little long and a little loose. And they look like someone probably should come in and tidy them up a little bit and edit them. And, uh, and I hope the dish is a little better than that. I think, I hope it's more disciplined. It's, it's not just my column. It's a whole bunch of other features. It's, uh, it's integrated with response from readership. Um, it has a contest. It has other features uh, so I think there's a mini weekly magazine, and it's uh, I've been a little shocked by how well it's done. I didn't really expect quite this in terms of numbers of we're over a hundred thousand people now get it every week, um, and we're coming up to like maybe around nineteen thousand people actually paying for it, um, which is. Uh, which if there's two of you doing it, which there is me and my amazing friend and colleague, Chris Bodena, um, who worked at the dish with me as well. Uh, that's a, just an astonishing, uh, reality. And, uh, you know, I went from being canceled. I feel like Dave Chappelle really. I was like, I, I, if this is being canceled, then, uh, then, 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 then I like it. Um, yeah, you, people have a hunger for your words and your thoughts, so it doesn't surprise us at all uh, at Politics and Media 101 how successful you've been. We're going to get into your new book uh, now, Andrew. Uh, you're republishing dozens of essays since 1989. We had George Will on, and I think he published like 80 years worth of content, so 30 isn't that bad. Um, he published – he's not been – isn't he 80? He's I'm not the, that old. <laughs> Tongue in cheek, tongue in cheek. Okay, I think okay, he's like okay. eighty four. Poor, poor guy. <laughs> no, I, he was, I like he was George. George. He's, a, he's a great guy. He's a wonderful person. He was hard very, sometimes. Very little hard. It's, it's, it, he was. Was he loquacious? I mean, I would think the problem with having him is that he wouldn't say anything. 
Which he is, was is pretty there good. long pauses. He he was saying a lot. He was drinking a few martinis. So as we oh, got good. later and later into the night, he was. Um, Are we allowed to do that kind of thing on this? We would love it if you were just yourself. Drink drink some martinis, maybe smoke some marijuana, whatever your I, vice I, I is. Do not, I do not drink martinis. I do not drink alcohol, really. I mean, I do occasionally, but I, I will light up if, if that's okay. Oh, p- please do. Um, one of the most fascinating parts of, of this new book that you're launching, Out on a Limb, is you've changed a lot your mind a ton since 1989, and you're also publishing your own arguments where your mind has since changed my my question is so my little my history i went from working for the rnc in 2016 to becoming a democrat after trump was elected so i i know how it can be uncomfortable to you know see some of your past mistakes how uncomfortable has it been for you though to look back on some of your work and then highlight that work and maybe some of those arguments you don't agree with anymore to the general public well the truth is i i i uh, the main uh, agony of publishing your old pieces is reading them in the first place. If if you're if you're a writer like me, you just you 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 just hate the sound of your own voice. And I I've always had this capacity to uh, write a piece and then like forget about it, like move away from it. I I, I I for some reason I'm just I'm not the only writer like this, but I, I hate dwelling on my own shit. You know, <laughs> it's 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 and all you see are the, the, the ways you could have done it better um, and so on. However, happily, there were a ridiculous, a ridiculous amount of, of stuff I'd hacked out over the years. I wouldn't say I didn't publish in this book anything that I no longer believe in. And I think the only thing that – I mean the only real thing that deeply changed in my perspective uh, was a shift in foreign policy thinking away from a much more – a position much more sympathetic to neoconservatism to a position much more uh, sympathetic to realism. I'd never, I'd never been a total intellectual neoconservative, but 9-11, I think, traumatized me and damaged my psyche, to be honest, and made it, made it uh, flooded it with trauma and fear in ways that made it hard to think. And that led me to, I think, support the Iraq War in a way that, in retrospect, was was relatively shameful. Uh, I mean, it was good faith, uh, but I was terribly wrong, and I made certain errors that violated my own principles. And so, the way to deal with that issue is to do what I did, which is not reproduce the the embarrassing pieces. Well, they weren't embarrassing, but the uh, the uh, uh, the pieces I really regret having written, but to include a piece that explained what I had got wrong. <clears throat> I'd already done that. I put out an ebook called I Was Wrong about my Iraq war writing. I just felt it was important to hold myself accountable to my readers because at that time I was also in daily contact with them. And I think that gives you a, a more visceral sense of responsibility to people. And, and also because it was day by day, hour by hour, um, it was extremely difficult to bob and weave and duck these questions. And if you're a weekly columnist, you can just avoid it for a few weeks. Um, so that was the only one uh, where clearly I wanted to mark a, uh, a shift. But I, I, part of the point of this book is that I think 
in fact, a reader, at least I hope, having will, will see that in fact, pretty consistent in terms of my outlook on the world uh, over those 32 years and 60 essays. Uh, even though, of course, they were written at different times and different moments and had to... Uh, I mean, there were some things that I have thinking this through. I think, for example, my piece for Obama in 07, 20, 2007, the Atlantic, which is called uh, Why Obama Matters, was, was, was at the time had a huge impact. <coughs> but when I look at it, I see what I hoped for Obama was his ability to transcend these deep tribal divides to actually move us into a more pragmatic, small-c conservative direction. And I do think that was his potential, and I do think he tried, but I think I was fatally, uh, I misjudged how deep those divides were and how resilient they would become. And so it reads, it reads uh, naive uh, at that point. Um, uh, so that, that's what I would say, a, mi a mixture. But I hope, I hope in general, the point of this is to say, those things you've heard about me that I've changed my mind completely, that, I, that all the other stuff you get called on Twitter, et cetera, I just wanted to say instead of having to defend myself each time, just put it out there and say, look, here it is. I'm not – this is not – I am cherry-picking because I, I don't want to put out my worst work, obviously. But here it is, and, and, and make of it what you will. But I felt, I felt that was an important piece of context. So I, I want to drill down on something you hit on earlier in our in our show here tonight about uh, your not your influence on the, on the gay rights movement. For everybody in the audience that maybe doesn't know, you profoundly influenced the gay rights movement, which partly evolved into our current social justice movements that you now criticize. Um, yes. So yeah, so help me, man. How how has the movement changed? Um, where did they lose you, or are there commonalities between what you were part of? And what you're also now criticizing? Very much continuities, I would say. You, you understand that when some of us emerging in the 80s and early 90s, and we were the first generation really to be openly gay from the get-go. Um, and some of us looked at the state of the gay rights movement and the state of the debate and also were in the middle of experiencing this horrifying epidemic. Uh that was killing so many of us. And I thought, I thought that exactly the problem at the time was exactly the problem now with, with what's left of the gay rights movement. I don't think it's, I don't think there's a gay rights movement anymore. I, I, I can argue about that. I, I really don't think that's what the current alphabet people are about. Um, but uh, when I proposed marriage equality and military service, uh, it was deeply opposed by the left, by the gay left, by almost the entire gay establishment. They didn't want marriage. They thought it was the, – the establishment thought it was crazily uh, over the top. Uh, it was an overreach beyond anything that they had imagined that it would only set us back. The left hated it because they don't like marriage at all, and they were about – they wanted to subvert all existing relationships. They wanted to, as they put it, turn the table over, not get a place at it. And so, you know, I was actually picketed by gay activists for my position on gay marriage. I know it's hard for people to believe, but that's the actual story. But for about 10 to 15 years, just a handful of us made these arguments and were, you know, really challenged by 
gay the gay activists around us and indeed by the big gay groups like the human rights campaign that really wanted us to shut up and stop so and we won we won that argument in fact the one thing hrc was always saying back then by which i mean the human rights campaign was that we'll just do an employment non-discrimination act everyone believes in that and we need to do that now and we do that and then we'll get on to these other more difficult questions. And I was like, no, these other more difficult questions are going to make it easier to pass that because they tackle the core of the problem, which is, are gay people human beings like you and me? Are they members of our own families? Are they, are they not the other? And that was the goal, was to say, we're not the other. We are actually in the center of your own families. That because we are, we are, uh, we are distributed randomly across the entire population, we're in red state families. We're in religiously conservative families. We're in also super woke families. We're in liberal families. We're everywhere. Um, and that therefore, this notion that we are always being othered had to be overcome. And we won. I mean, we have marriage equality in ways that were uh, truly shocking in a way for a lot of people. Um, and, uh, and having won, we kind of, those of us who were in that position kind of, We've moved on. I mean, it's done, right? Um, but anyway, the institutions that are left that still have to fund themselves and find things to do then moved into the social justice space and then the uh, queer and gender theory space and also, of course, the quote-unquote racial justice space. And so that's where uh, I don't think I've changed at all. I think the movement has changed beyond recognition. The position of gay people in the culture has changed beyond recognition in my lifetime. And uh, I think I'd try to hold the line, um, which means that I would be alienated from the current movement. It is returned to the stuff I challenged in the 80s, uh, except now not that much is at stake in as much as gay people already have these core civil rights. So there's not we don't I don't feel the necessity to really change it for the sake of the gays, even though I worry a little bit that some of the excesses that are now going on in gender and queer theory might lead to a backlash that would include gay people as well. I think that's unlikely, but it's still a possibility. Well, let's hope not. Quick story. I was working for Congressman Tim Kuehl's camp for the audience. Really, really conservative. He was anti-gay marriage, and we had a couple of Taiwanese activists in our office meeting. And it was the day the Obergefell Supreme Court justice ruling came down. So uh, they asked if they could take a tour outside because, uh, Andrew, as I'm sure you know, and as I'm sure everybody in the audience knows, you walk outside that day as the ruling's coming down. And there were thousands and thousands of people outside just celebrating. And I mean, I, I tell you. This isn't hyperbole. I walked outside and you could just feel a sense of relief and happiness in the air. And it was honestly one of the most beautiful things that, that I have witnessed. So um, I'd like to thank you for all the work you did to kind of push push this movement in that direction. Um, I, I do want to get into cancel culture, though, and it's received a lot of broad pushback for a variety of legitimate reasons. One critical result of cancel culture is people being held accountable in the public opinion where the justice system either fails or is not applicable. Can we look at reforms around workplace sexual harassment as a positive outgrowth of cancel? Yes. Uh, well, I know. I know. <laughs> How's that? Um, I mean, 
weak insofar as something like the Me Too movement, for example, which was which was not, I mean, in origin, it's not about cancel culture as such. It was about holding someone like Harvey Weinstein to account for his unbelievable depredations. And insofar as it exposed and, and some of the stuff that was going on, which is truly horrifying, and also helped people better understand, these men better understand, the nightmare that working around men can often be for a woman in a professional setting. And the kind of levels of it, it's a huge step forward. Absolutely no question. Um, and I don't think anybody with their eyes open in the world and understanding the differences between men and women and also understanding how men will take advantage of those differences uh, could be sorry of what we've done. I think it's been great. I do, however, think that when you broaden that into something like the shitty media men list, when you launch accusations without evidence, when you demonize people who do not have a chance to really present their side of the story, and when you do this to people who aren't as prominent as me, but are much further down the totem pole, I think it can be horrible. And I think a lot of uh, people can be unfairly accused. And the accusation of sexual assault, for example, if there's no evidence for it, it seems to me to be a very weighty thing to throw out in the public if you do not have real support for that. And so I do think that in the great good that a lot of that did, there was uh, some illiberal elements that worried me, like, like, uh, 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 like publicizing a bad date, like accusing people of rape when they haven't been, like when they haven't done such a thing or ever been able to do such a thing. Uh, and there are many, many cases that we found. And the shitty medium in this was one thing that I just snapped over because they themselves acknowledged they were putting the names of these people out there without any evidence that they had that they were guilty of any of this stuff, just rumors. And they, didn't, they said they didn't do it for public consumption, but clearly they're lying about that. They did. They did ruin a lot of people's lives without evidence. And I'm still a believer in due process. And I'm still a believer in justice in that sense. And I think the way it's tilted the balance of due process on college campuses is, is awful. Uh, so it's a mixed bag. Uh, but I don't think uh, becoming aware of, uh, uh, of, 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 of the depredations of men should necessarily mean throwing out every liberal principle you've ever had in order to get them, put it that way. Is cancel culture new today? Has it always existed in society? And if it has always existed, what makes it different today? It's always existed. It's particularly uh, present in America, weirdly enough. I mean, America is this hugely free place, obviously, which never had an established religion, in which religions were really ground up and in which was a fertile ground from the very beginning for religious fanaticism. I mean, the Salem witch trials were cancel culture. They were accusations based on a moral panic against individuals without due process. Uh, you can go back and look at, for example, the Hollywood blacklist. What was that if it wasn't cancel culture? If you could discover that a writer had some association politically with even tangentially to anything to do with the Communist Party, they were finished. 
uh, they couldn't write and work in Hollywood. Um, that was cancel culture. The lavender scare in the middle of the 20th century against gay people in the federal government was cancel culture. People were thrown out on the basis of mere suspicions because they were committing terrible acts in private, of course, uh, with no actual evidence of this. So I think it's this Puritan streak which wants to uh, delineate uh, wicked people, ostracize them, and punish them. The scapegoating of that is, is something deep in American culture. Now, the difference is simply it's a different religion. I mean, it was, you know, a, a kind of Protestant Christianity that, and then, of course, an anti-communism sort of uh, uh, religious impulse. And now it is about imposing the analysis of critical theory onto liberal society, which means essentially tearing up almost all liberal procedures and institutions to achieve racial and social and sexual justice, quote unquote. Um, So entirely similar in dynamics, culturally very reminiscent of the past, um, or even just as recently in the 1980s when you had all these people being accused of being child molesters if they ran childcare homes. I don't know whether you remember, you were too young, but there was a huge amount of people falsely accused uh, and huge amounts of hysteria that was going on everywhere. Now, it was. There are cases when it could, should have been seen and judged, but it's incredibly important to find out the real ones and not the fake ones. And many of these places turned out to be complete, completely innocent of the charges they were handling. If the, if, the, if the press had been more interested in the Catholic Church at that time, they might have had uh, a better, a more fruitful uh, avenue of, of, of research. But, um, but I think these moral panics seize people, especially in this country, and can lead to temporary bursts of profoundly illiberal and uh, nasty mob impulses. Uh, Andrew, you mentioned you loved reading the comments of your readers. Uh, Today, you're going to get to hear their voices. So I think you're going to enjoy this. We will go to Kelly and then Greg. Thanks, Justin. And uh, Andrew, thank you so much for being here. I'm a huge fan and I can't believe I get to ask you a question. So uh, very excited about that. Um, so you you were a civil rights activist, um, and, and you touched on this a little earlier, so I just want to get a little deeper. But you were holding a position that wasn't accepted by broadly by the gay community. Um, do you think that you actually could take up that same fight in today's cultural climate? And if not, like, what do you think that that within our national conversation we're we're missing because because of this a liberal position that that maybe institutions, mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, has taken? Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Here's what I think uh, I'd say about that. That in fact, yes, there were plenty of people in the gay activist establishment and certainly in the gay media and in gay political institutions who didn't want this to happen and who thought marriage was inimical. But the truth was that many, many gay men and lesbians really wanted it. They were not represented by their elites. Uh, Gay men in particular were going through this health crisis where I watched and saw people, couples who had been together for decades, uh, a man who had uh, nursed his own husband to death, being told they can't enter the ward to visit the person in hospital, being thrown out of the apartment as the minute their husband died, being denied access to funerals, being treated 
on top of the incredible grief they were dealing with, with unspeakable contempt, because they didn't have the right to marry. And the right to marry would have cut through all of that. They had their actual next of kin, their husbands, or their, uh, were not legally their next of kin. Um, similarly, lesbians were beginning, uh, and this has is, this is continued, to have children. And it was terrifying to have children that you grew attached to, and at any moment someone else could come in and deny your custody of them because you didn't have full legal rights over your kids. You could go on a vacation and be in a state which didn't recognize the contract you had signed in your state, and you'd be screwed. Uh, so, in fact, it's often the case that what seems popular or what the elites are saying is super popular and, and, and the, the way in which they're saying you are out of touch is actually wrong. You are probably more in touch. I do not believe that the vast majority of people really do think that positions in companies and, uh, should be awarded on the basis of uh, identity characteristics as opposed to merit. I think most people don't want to see gifted and talented programs abolished entirely. Uh, I don't think people, I think people are genuinely concerned and uncomfortable with uh, having eight or nine, 10 year olds making medical decisions for their entire lives that will render them unable to have children or even experience an orgasm, uh, which is what's happening with trans medicine among children. Uh, but we're told that uh, no, and so we're also told that no trans people are concerned about this. None of this is true. Uh, and so, of course, you can make these arguments today. And in some ways, my experience was that trust your gut, look, talk to people around you, try not to be too caught in your own bubble. I mean, the great thing about being gay in the day is that you go out to gay bars, you meet people from all sorts of backgrounds. The thing about the gays is that we, are, we come from every single social class uh, and a vast majority of people are just normie Americans. And what they had been portrayed as struck me as bizarre, given what their actual needs were. Of course, a gay kid wants to know that he or she, when they grow up, could have a relationship with someone of the same sex and be treated just like their brother or their sister. Of course they do. And when, when we're told that they don't want that, you kind of know it's not true. And so you persist and you insist that uh, you're not crazy and uh, you can change things. I think I think I, I have a sense right now, and I may be wrong, because the institutional forces behind the imposition of critical theory principles across our country uh, is so huge. But I, I don't think most Americans believe in it, and, I, and I, I don't think it can be sustained if that's the case. Thank you for that question. We will go to Greg Sattel and Steve Crump. Uh, thanks, Justin, and thanks so much for joining us, uh, Andrew. Uh, and I, I want to thank you for your comments about writing. I do a fair amount of, of writing myself, and and I have the same exact reaction <laughs> writing that that you described. So uh, so you make me feel a lot better. But I will say, every once in a while, I do come across something that I've written, and I say, well, that, maybe that's not so bad. And those are, the worst those thing are, is that you do remember pieces you thought were really good. And, and then you, you go, go back, back and you think, the oh, they were, they were crap. <laughs> and, and then some of these pieces you came across, you really hadn't 
thought would hold up, and suddenly they seem to be better in your head. It's very strange. Um, and 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 the ones that hold up are the ones that were boring to you when you wrote because some of them, stretching, some of them. when you're stretching, you don't you don't you tend not to write well. Anyway, right. My my question is is about activism. Uh, there seems to be a huge divergence in the effectiveness in in activism. Obviously. The the LGBTQ movement was was ultimately um, fairly successful in, but it it, it you know it, it took a good thirty years, but but it was ultimately successful. The the color revolutions in the early two thousands uh, were successful, and and that success seems to have largely endured in in Georgia and in Ukraine and in uh, Serbia, but since then. Um, you know, the Arab Spring didn't really pan out. Uh, uh, the 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 uh, Occupy protest might be, you know, the biggest waste of time in in the history. Uh, you know, in his, you're talking about billions upon billions of dollars of of wasted man hours or women hours. Um, it seems that you know the fight for 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 criminal justice uh, the the window that was open is is seems to be shutting the window of opportunity what you have a fair amount of experience with activism what would you account for why some of these movements succeed and others all I can tell you really cuz I I I'm not an expert on the history of these movements um I'm a conservative, essentially not an activist, but um, uh, what I think what you need to do is is quite simple and something they're missing. And, and again, I think the marriage movement is an interesting one. Everybody kind of agrees it was very successful very quickly. I mean, it's 30 years is not that quick, but it was certainly quick by most people's expectations. And they never asked, well, how did that work? Now, I would say it worked in a couple of ways. One, we... We, inst- we, we made a big effort from the very get-go to explain ourselves to people. We told stories about ourselves. We made the arguments. We honed the arguments. We made them again and again. We, be- we were utterly open and, in fact, desperately willing to debate people from the other, other side. And at the, begin- the very beginning, when people took marriage, the idea of gays getting married as preposterous and silly. It was hard to get anyone to debate you on the right. They didn't want to even give this credence because it was so, as I, I did one debate with Gary Barham. We said, this is the craziest idea to come down the pike in so many years. Andrew, you should know better than this. And, uh, but I was thrilled because every debate we had exposed the audience on the readership and the listenership to these ideas. I put out an anthology which included all the best arguments I could find for marriage equality, but then all the best arguments against it in the same book. I had a policy of never, ever refusing to appear in a debate or a TV show or radio show on the subject because I knew there weren't many people who could do it, and I believed this was important. I also believed that we had an interesting break in 1993 with the Hawaii ruling, which gave us this opportunity. I was thrilled to death to be able to testify against the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996, et cetera, et cetera. So we didn't, I think the marriage movement did not scream at America, you're all a bunch of bigots. We demand this now. And any of you who disagree, we're going to persecute, demonize, 
and preferably get fired. That's not what we did. We took a really classically liberal approach to open debate. I mean, remember, some of the debates on this question in state legislatures were really quite compelling. Many of the court cases became quite compelling. And we also went, we also had one big advantage, and I think this, this has to be conceded. The big advantage is that gays were in most families. So we weren't some other. And if we only had the self-esteem and confidence to tell our own families the truth about ourselves, then we could really affect change at a very profound level at the grassroots. And that required just gay people believing in themselves. As I used to say, the question is not why we're fighting for gay marriage. is why did it take us so long to have the self-esteem and self-worth to see that we were worthy of it. Uh, and so it's persuasion, it's debate, it's personal testimony before you start screaming at people. Um, and uh, I think the marriage movement, not, not the AIDS movement, not ACT UP or anything, but the marriage movement uh, was an absolute example of what the left hates to call respectability politics. And and, and, and what today's uh, social justice activists regard as pathetic liberalism, when you, you, you take a both sides approach, you, you treat conservative arguments against marriage equality as assaults on your very existence as opposed to arguments that can be met and, and debated. And so that is why, I, that, that's my approach to activism. And I was never, I was a writer too, so that's a very different role. You're not actually organizing protests. You're not filing amicus briefs. Your job, and Evan Wilson and I, very early on, sort of split it up. He's doing the legal shit. I'm doing the education shit. And we didn't want one to get too far ahead of the other. And you do that every day for like 15 years and you get somewhere. But, and that will tell you, I think, also that American, the American people are open to change, open to be persuaded. They're open-minded if you treat them right. And the current atmosphere is not treating anybody right, but it's particularly not treating the conservative part of the uh, world uh, with sort of respect. And that's what's driving the tribalism is their sense, which is not wrong, that they're not respected. Thank you for that question, Greg. Again, reminder, we are with Andrew Sullivan, most recent author of Out on a Limb. And we will go to Andy for the next question. Uh, thanks, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Andrew. Really fascinating to hear from you. Um, I have um, a first micro question, which is uh, for those in the room, um, the, the the current leader of the opposition, so one of the most powerful politicians in the country, is Sir Keir Starmer. And I believe you were at school with him, Andrew. I'd love to hear what he was like as a snotty schoolboy. But then the, the actual question, once you're done uh, dishing and being as rude as you like, is in terms of if you, 2021, going on 2022, if you have uh, an, an agenda, an issue you want to raise and, and um, um, <clears throat> take the role of an activist on, uh, across the, the different platforms that you've operated, you've got the mainstream media, there's Twitter, there's stuff, Substack, etc. What do you think is is the best and most relevant platform for reaching um, the the widest audience today? Well, how lovely to hear from you. Um, where are you in England? Uh, Oxford. Are you in Indeed. England? 
You're yeah. in Oxford. Fuck yeah. Uh, well, how lovely to talk to somebody from Oxford <laughs> in real time. Um, uh, first of all, let me dish about Keir. Um, I didn't just go to school with Keir. I was seated at the next desk to him, Starmer Sullivan, alphabetically, for five years. And we both took the same public bus every day to school, uh, which took an hour, over an hour to get there. Um, and, and virtually from the minute we met, we argued. And we were kind of notorious on that bus having these crazy knockdown fights about politics. He was a wild-haired, woolly, uh, I, I think at some point he might have called himself a Euro-communist or something. It was, it, it was definitely a supporter of the anti-Nazi league. This was the 70s. So it was kind of, it was the rise of Thatcher. And I was this Thatcher, this young teenage Thatcherite. He was a wild man. He was rough and ready. He wore his tie thick. He liked rugby. He was always looked messy. Uh, and I honestly don't recognize him at all. Uh, I just don't. I, I, uh, now I, I, in public, I don't recognize him. Now in private, I have kept up with him over the years and I've seen him a couple of times last time I've been over there with other school friends. Um, he's a lovely guy. I mean, he's a wonderful person. I have nothing but deep affection and respect for him. I just don't know what happened to his wild spirit. And he seems so, I don't know, so constipated and careful. Um, but he's a good person, in my view. He's an extremely intelligent person. Um, and a good person as much as he, he takes care of his friends. He, I mean, he keeps up with plenty of us, and many of us are not famous, like more world famous in Poland, like me. Uh, so, uh, that's the first thing. The second thing I think, look, I, the thing about the, the web is that any, every page as Matt Drudge used to say is the equivalent of every other page. The question is simply, how do you get people to see the page? It can be accessible to hundreds of millions of people as to 10 people. And that's the amazing thing about the internet. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I would, if I were starting today, I would do what I'm doing, at, you know, in my, in the, uh, you know, my decrepit years is to start a subset, get your work out there. I would say start a blog 10, 20 years ago. Um, I would say start doing reporting or making your arguments. Then if you have to pitch those things on Twitter, just to get that audience maybe out there, um, uh, and, and rely upon the quality of your work, uh, be happy with incremental progress, um, try and get some money. I mean, to, to actually pay your way for doing it. And Substack is fantastic on that front. You don't have to have that many subscribers to make a, a, a living as a writer, which has never been a good living, uh, not traditionally. Um, so, uh, yeah, the web and Substack. Thank maybe you for, YouTube, maybe YouTube. I don't know. Maybe YouTube. I'm fantastic. Thank you for those questions, Andy. We will go to two more questions. We will go to uh, Razib and then we'll go to Amit. Uh, Razib. Yeah, quick question, Andrew. Um, hey, Razib. Hey, what's up, Andrew? Hope nice you're doing to well. see you, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I know we, 
Have we ever actually met? Uh, we have not met. Uh, someday yeah. it will happen. It will happen. It will happen. I've known anyway, I just, just for the I'm huge. You know, I'm a huge group. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the same. Same. <laughs> for the listeners out there, uh, I've known Andrew uh, back when he had a flash uh, bubble thing on his blog in 2001. <laughs> yes, yeah. I did. <laughs> yes, I remember that. So I have a, I, it was cool. It was cool. It was cool. <laughs> So um, I have a quick question. Um, What if what if Marty Peretz still owned the New Republic? Uh, How would that work in 2021? It would make it a far more interesting magazine than it is now. Um, Look, people can say whatever they like about Marty, and he has very strong opinions, particularly around the question of Israel, that are not without controversy. So I, you know, and he wouldn't expect me to defend everything he's ever said or written. But here's what Marty did: was that he created a space where you in, were encouraged to joust, where people, where he would bring into a liberal magazine a young gay Tory to argue for gay marriage, where he would, he helped, he, he basically was the reason Charles Krauthammer became a writer, for example. He was the first person to champion the work of Leon Wieseltier. He, he brought on from Harvard one of the best journalists of his generation or any, which is Mike Kinsley. Uh, if you look at the people he brought in, people like Mickey Kaus uh, or Robert Wright, you know, they now do the, the wonderful Bob and Mickey podcast together, but they, and they are incredibly sharp, but utterly different. This is, this is a man who presided over a real symposium a real and every week people were really interested in what was said and what it meant to this magazine favored one thing and not the other i walked into there when they were still in the in the aftermath of the new republic's endorsement of the contras back in late 80s when neoconservatism was coming into uh into uh its zenith and uh boy uh that was, I mean, there was a New Yorker cartoon of walking into a restaurant. Do you want to go for the pro-contra section or the anti-contra section? All based upon the New Republic's politics. Um, so all I can tell you is that, uh, and he wouldn't want to do it again, but um, yeah, it would be, it, it would be a much, it would be a, it would be a rare place where you really felt there was internal dissent and genuine good faith internal debate, whereas opposed to the unbelievably dreary and monotone and banal uh, elite leftism that you get across the entire elite media today. Thank you for that question, my friend. We will go uh, to Amit for the last question. Thank you, Justin, and hey, Andrew. Thanks for giving us the time. So you mentioned at one point, it was really interesting, you said when you're at the Atlantic in the same newsroom with Jeffrey Goldberg, Matt Iglesias, Megan McArdle, did you... It was all of those, right? Did I miss anybody? Yeah, and Tan- Miss Tanahasi. Yeah. Tanahasi Coates. Okay. Um, yeah, well, anyway, I just thought that was really interesting. So thanks for sharing. Um, <laughs> I was. All these people have, have um, written recently about cancel culture, and obviously it's part of the talk tonight. Um, in the run-up to the 2022 midterms, we're a year and a month out. Um, do you see this becoming a centralized issue, or is it going to be more of just a cultural thing on the side? I, I, I don't know, um, but I do know that uh, 
I, if I were asked, I would say it's going to have a big ish- impact. Not this specific issue of cancel culture uh, with all its nuances, but the, the imposition of this, of what Wesley Yang calls the successor ideology on every major cultural institution, every major corporation, every high school in the country is, which is particularly the case in things like, you know, teaching the 1619 project or CRT infused curricula, or indeed the, uh, the imposition of a, of a, of a, of a, a small minority of trans activist view of the world in defense of genuinely needy and important trans kids. That all this stuff is building. People hear it, they see it, they feel it, when they encounter, they encounter it. This is not going to end well. Look, look for example, at the, the biggest slogan of 2020, defund the police. Just within just 14, 15 months, we have refunding the police everywhere. We have a new uh, mayor of New York City who's, who's a former cop, uh, who's also bringing back the gifted and talented programs. This whole equity fixation, the imposition of sex and race discrimination as somehow morally virtuous things to do, to discriminate on the basis of race and sex is somehow now, if it's the right race and the right sex, completely fine. Um, if you think, and if anyone thinks that that stuff is not going to provoke some kind of rebuke from most normal middle of the road Americans, then I think they're, they're in a very tight bubble. And, uh, uh, we'll see, we'd be very interested to see what happens, uh, in Virginia, uh, next month. Um, if, 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 uh, Youngkin wins, and I don't know what's going to happen, and does so on partly on the basis of the curricular battles in the school boards, uh, then uh, then that's going to be a sign that, that the Democrats could be wiped out if they stick to this woke identity, which is so deeply unpopular in the country at large. Thank you for that last question. So, uh, Mr. Solomon, I just want to thank you very much for joining the over 2,000 live listeners, which will be amplified on the podcast. And then wow. ask 2,000 people were listening to this? They, yeah, they, you, you draw an audience, my friend. Jesus Lord. Uh, well, please buy the book. <laughs> no, we, we've been um, we've been plugging it. We'll continue to plug it. We'll put it in the podcast for it's you. It's fun. Um, it's any fun. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, um, thank you. Well, we, we ask every guest this, so I, okay. I want to hear your thoughts on... I'm uh, high now, so... Uh, wonderful. <laughs> I, I, want, I want your thoughts. It could be anything, but I'd love to hear on the state of democracy in America. It could be positive, it could be negative, or somewhere in between. I'm this stoned, and you asked me about the future of democracy in America. <laughs> or what, what your favorite... It could be whatever you want. Uh, well, okay. It's... it's um, well, democracy is not going away. The, the question is if liberal democracy can survive. Uh, you can have uh, a democracy like Hungary currently is, uh, or you can have, or or you can have democracies dominated by a cult figure or a ideological cult, or you could have two parties talking to one another, debating, disagreeing, coming up with practical compromises. You have free speech everywhere. You have due process for people. Uh, and that achievement, which is very rare in human history, 
really rare in human history, uh, is dying. And from both sides, in very different ways, and I, I, I don't want to say it's it, – that's the empirical thing. The, and people have got to ask themselves, are you content to see it die or are you going to, or do you want to fight for it? And I want to fight for it. And, and the book is an attempt to say, this is someone who's trying to fight for these things for 30 years and in different places, different, uh, eras. Uh, but we are lucky to have inherit this system. We are so lucky to live in that kind of society where you feel free to speak your mind, uh, where you actually, the debates lead to something constructive. And when you look at a Congress that's so tribalized, it can't pass anything, could barely pass a continuing resolution to fund the government. It can barely raise the debt limit. That's how broken it is. Uh, and when you look at the media, you see one sort of chorus versus another with very few people wrestling with the, nuances of both and prepared to entertain both sides within their own institution. This is, this is depressing as, as, as fuck. And, uh, so, uh, and I think you can do it. And then when I was, you know, these big, how do you do it? Well, you do it by, I think you just do it by trying to practice it. So, you know, in your own work, in your own writing, you try and be liberal which is the sense not polemical, not fanatical. You can be, you can have a great fun rant every now and again. That's fine. But if you're trying to move the ball forward and to understand the world. Um, and so, and if you're prepared to debate people who disagree with you, for example, what I do on the weekly dish every week is immediately following my column. I have the strongest possible reader dissents, which I'm forced to answer, respond to or not. If they win the argument, uh, that kind of thought that we're all here trying to figure out the truth. We need space to do that. We need to stop mob pressure. We need to stop elite intimidation. Uh, uh, and we need to, to disarm these online Twitter mobs. Uh, but we can build it up if we practice it ourselves. And that's the model that I'm trying to pursue at the Weekly Dish. And... It's it's one I hope to do. Uh, I hope the book does it too. But I, uh, so I, I, you know, I'm not depressed because this is you'd be depressed as a writer if there was nothing to defend. You know, if, if it was all banal and boring and there wasn't any drama. There's a real fight on our hands. And instead of being depressed by that, we should be invigorated by it. That's all we have for you today. Again, huge thanks to Andrew for coming out, to our audience for their great questions, and to you for being here. If you like or dislike what you hear, if you want to find out how to join us live almost every day of the week, maybe ask one of our upcoming guests a question, or hear past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.club or pm101.live. They both work and will get you to the same place where you can find all that and more. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team, thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.